Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today, my guest is Cheryl Moore Goff, and we're going to be talking about her new book, The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds. The best course of action conscious consumers can take to fight GMOs is to grow their own food. Thanks to popular urban aquaponics models, organic food can be grown sustainably and in areas where space and water are limited. Regardless of where you live or what method you choose to grow food, it all begins the same way, with the seed. In the complete guide to saving seeds, you will find the largest and most comprehensive resource available about seed saving. And what I love about this book is it has so much information in it, and especially for uh, all the folks out there that love horticulture, uh, there's a myriad of priceless information that educated and conscious gardeners should really know, especially the botanical nomenclature, which I know many of you love just memorizing all sorts of sort of details and it's a, it does make for a great conversation if I do say so myself but uh, you know, uh, in addition isolation requirements, seed collection processes, uh, germination information, uh, also information about invasives which is something that more people should really talk about uh, in addition which plants you cannot harvest seeds from overwintering instructions and how to transplant and there's just so much information in here. I mean, it's such a beautifully written book. The information in here is very detailed. And let me tell you, you don't need to be a master gardener to appreciate all the hard work, energy, and effort that went into this book. Uh, and it's such a great reference, um, a, a great reference for anyone out there who is really interested in not only what they're putting in their garden, but perhaps what they already have in their garden. So I would like to welcome to the show Cheryl Margoff. Good afternoon, Cheryl. Well, good afternoon, June. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I mean, this book, my goodness, this is by far uh, one of the prettiest books that I've seen. And the information that is in here is just really fantastic, and it's, it's needed. I mean, some of the things that you talk about, especially with invasive species, uh, it's interesting that there are, guard, there are nurseries and um, garden centers that will sell plants that, uh, you know, when you're talking to other people that are master gardeners or just very um, you know, seasoned gardeners, and they'll say, oh, you know, don't buy that. That stuff will take over your yard. And it's not something that's, you know, unless you get into a conversation like that, that people unfortunately don't discover until after the damage is done. So uh, from that perspective, I truly appreciate the fact that you took the time to include that in the book. 
Well, thank you for that. Yeah, we do uh, want to be sure that people know what are, is invasive in their particular environment and what may be invasive here in, in Bozeman, Montana, may be considered a real special plant in Florida or vice versa. And so uh, we do want people to get aware of that and know who to contact for that kind of information. Now, Cheryl, you are quite the expert, and I'd like you to just take a moment to share with our audience a little bit of information about yourself. I mean, you have a fantastic background, and I just would like to for you to uh, discuss it so that people can truly understand that you really are just such a wonderful person to listen to, but you're an expert. You really know your stuff. Well, thank you. And, you know, I have to say, June, that if I could do it, anybody could do it. I was raised um, in Southern California as a child where food came from the grocery store, and that was it. Uh, and then in high school, one of my uh, my boyfriend's father decided he wanted some collards. And, June, do you know what he did? <laughs> what did he do? He dug up his lawn and planted collards. If you can imagine how ridiculous that seemed to somebody who was living in Southern California. And by golly, what's that? I was going to say, back then, I can imagine that people started talking, saying, oh, okay, what's going on with this guy? But, well, absolutely. And it was, yeah. it was absolutely so foreign to me. And um, I thought that it was kind of weird. And uh, I did move to Montana when I was 18. And uh, lo and behold, I lived next door to an older couple, and they were growing vegetables in their backyard. And they had fruit trees in their backyard. And I thought, oh, okay, I get it. And so moved to an area where there were people with vegetable gardens all around. And uh, I was a gardener long before I was a horticulturist uh, professionally. And uh, I married my husband. Uh, he and I combined have a 100 years of gardening experience. Wow. He used to save seeds with his grandpa who raised him. Um, and uh, who thought, you know, why should I spend a nickel on seeds when I can save my own? And uh, between the two of us, um, we've been, he's the uh, extension horticulture specialist for the state of Montana. Then he uh, went, moved up into uh, management and uh, associate dean, and I took over the extension horticulture specialist job. And I've taught master gardener classes and written the Master Gardener Handbook for Montana, and my husband wow. and I, between the two of us, have written five gardening books, um, most of them regional for the Rocky Mountain regions and or Montana, and we also co-author, have co-authored numerous uh, extension publications, and we write for Zone 4 mag Magazine on a regular basis, which is a magazine for the Rocky Mountain region. What haven't you done? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I love talking to people like you because it makes me, uh, it motivates me to do more, more and more and more. And, uh, wow, that is uh, quite a list of really impressive uh, achievements and contributions to the gardening community. I mean, to not only just to teach the Master Gardener program with it, I mean, within itself is quite a challenge, but to actually create the program for it, to write it, that that takes a lot of knowledge, skill, and ability to really communicate uh, the the core components that a good master gardener really needs to know. I mean, I've seen master gardeners from all over the country where 
I just wonder how they went through the program. And then I've seen others where you wonder uh, how come they don't have a Ph.D. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's mixed, you know. But um, it's just interesting that, uh, especially in this day and age, uh, you would think that people would have been saving seeds all along. And um, I, I guess especially since there is such a big concern about how our food is grown, and you have people like Joel Saladin, uh, who's an organic farmer, who's really leading a very big movement within organic agriculture to encourage people not only to get to know who their farmer is, but you know, to, to reconnect with how their food is grown and take responsibility for it. So for people that have an interest in gardening, which I think everybody should grow something. doesn't matter if it's just some kitchen herbs uh, in a pot on your windowsill or if you want to have uh, a full you know, vegetable garden or you know, if you're just kind of a low-maintenance person and you just want to have um, you know, maybe a couple plants just to you know, keep the interest going or whatever the case may be, um, I think everybody really should have something that they care for, that they can also contribute to um, what it is that they consume. But uh, it's interesting that you shared that story about the collard greens. Um, I I don't know. Maybe it's just that I don't have a love of lawn because I always had to cut the lawn. (laughs) I just always felt that, you know, it's such a waste of land. We should use it to have an herb garden or just something that's a little bit more attractive than just plain green i I just i don't know maybe maybe i just have um an odd way of viewing it um but uh it's interesting there are more and more people that are starting to take their lawns and turn them into herb gardens and rock gardens and all sorts of stuff and you know just to make it different because everybody is looking for something that is more appealing than just having the same old cookie cutter type uh, landscape that everybody else has. Oh, right. And the lawns are a huge water user, huge yeah. water user. And what do you get back for, from it? You get maybe some plant material that you can till into your garden. But on the other hand, here in my backyard in Montana, I have a 1,000-square-foot garden, vegetable garden, and I probably have 4,000 square feet in addition to that. So that would be a rather large herb garden in my case. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the, whatever you know you can handle, you should right. definitely pursue. I know there's some years where I start off with this enormous garden, and then by August my schedule is just jammed, and then it's like, oh, gosh, I've got to get out there, and then all of a sudden the weeds have taken over. Yes. But um, I really do try to make more of a concerted effort because uh, I'm, I can my own, my own food, and I also dehydrate a lot of my herbs and it's funny the one year that I didn't dehydrate oregano last year I really had I, I ran out and I'm happy that in the uh, northeast we didn't really have a very cold uh, winter so um, I was able to uh, harvest more but it's just you know it, it the one year that you don't do something is when you really need it oh know? absolutely always always now I need to ask you this in in the or in the garden centers or nurseries wherever you shop they have all these new products and i'm always weary because i never know okay uh if i buy this what is it 
that they've done to it that I don't know that I might be exposing myself to. For example, I saw this 72 cell pack for seed starting, and apparently it's just a little peat pod where apparently you drop the seeds in using warm water, and it's supposed and it's supposed to be something where you basically um, drop the seed, add the water, and it takes off on its own. What is your opinion of using that method, especially if you're looking to have an organic garden? Well, I don't know what product you're talking about, but I do know that there's a, a vast assortment of uh, seed starting products on the market, and some of them say that they will break down naturally. And uh, in Montana, they don't for several years because our environment is not conducive to that type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but I also know that I was at a hardware store looking at some of their products that are new, and they had, uh, oh boy, I don't even know what you'd call them, little, uh, they were like jiffy pellets, they were like expanded yeah. something, and I was reading the, the uh, label, and it said, uh, made of completely composted materials, but it didn't say what had been composted. Now, that would make me a little bit concerned. It but also, if they're if they're using something like coir, which is coconut fiber, I wouldn't mm. be quite so concerned over this composted. Heaven only knows what it is. Yeah, you can compost a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want that to be introduced into your your land. Exactly. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that and, and folks, I'm not talking about. Uh, necessarily toxic materials. What I'm talking about is people co will compost things that they shouldn't, such as seeds and, or plants that are invasive. They will throw it in the compost, or if this is uh, compost that's been derived from municipal waste, oh, yeah. then you have no idea what you're getting. Absolutely now, we're, not. We're fortunate in New York City, uh, the compost program that they have is from what I understand, it's it's one of the best in the nation, and um, I happen to be a master composter, uh, and I took my certification through the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which is like my home away from home, and uh, they really go above and beyond when they test the compost for its its the quality, and uh, I, I'm not sure all the different things that they test it for, but I know that it is top-notch compost, and it's interesting. They have the compost givebacks. I don't know if they're going to be doing that this year. I'd have to find out. But I know that uh, in the past they would have these compost give-back programs where you would go to the different uh, uh, areas and basically the public can drive to the, these locations, fill up a carload of compost, and take whatever they need. And, you know, it's really top-quality stuff. But when you're buying compost, my concern is, okay, uh, in New York, we do uh, have a sanitation program where they do pick up curbside rubbish. But the thing is, is that not everybody is going to be as careful as someone such as myself is with anything that I put out. And usually what I will put out will be um, trees, you know, tree branches, um, just things that I can't necessarily compost in my domestic compost environment and all of this combined with so many other people's waste is being hauled off to faraway places um, I think ours might be going to 
Ohio and Pennsylvania, and I think the the um, the islands, the Caribbean. I'm not sure at this point. But the thing is, is that you don't know what else it's combined with, and you don't know what you're introducing into your soil. So that's why I tell everybody, if you're going to have a garden, have a small compost pile. It's not something that's going to be an eyesore. It's not something that's going to reek unless you neglect it. And it's something that you should have if you're going to have a garden. It just financially makes sense and just um, environmentally makes sense. Uh, I have to say that there are some parts of the country where you can't have that critical mass of three by three by three in order to have a compost pile. Uh, what we have to do here, because our nights are cold and our seasons are so short, is mm -hmm. I just um, dig in the garden refuse directly into the garden and it will decompose right in place. Yeah. Uh, and so that's another way to do it. Or you can have a worm bin or uh, something along those lines. But having your, your basic three by three by three doesn't work right here. Well, yeah, yeah especially in your climate. I, am, I uh, will be the first to admit I am not familiar with uh, working with the conditions that you work with, right. but yeah, but there's always there still is always a way, and the worm oh, bin yeah. worm bins are fantastic. But the bottom line is is that it's something that people should do, especially if they want to if they want to control the quality of their soil and what they're introducing to their soil. You, know? you bet. So getting back to these pods, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you use them? Do I use what? Do you use these pods? These um, these manufactured multi-pod packs where you can grow uh, 72 plants at a time. Oh no, I don't. I I use. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think you would. <laughs> I use pretty much whatever I have on hand, as long as I have washed it completely and washed it with soap and water, rinsed it with water, rinsed it with bleach and water, and then rinse it with water again to to kill any contaminants that might be in there. Um, I have some flats that I've used for many, many years and some four-inch pots, and and uh, I was experimenting with something called cow pots last year. I don't know if you've heard of those, but they're kind of clever. They're made out of pressed, composted cow manure. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't. I think, um, I think I might just head up to the farm and make my own, but... Uh... <laughs> You know, I don't know. I, I kind of I am very resourceful when it comes to anything to do with my garden. I just when I teach composting, I tell people don't waste your money on these manufactured bins. Make your own out of materials that would otherwise wind up in the in the landfill. But with uh, these pods, tell me more about them. They sound fascinating. Uh, the cow pods? Yeah. Well, that's just about all there is to it, really. I stumbled across them uh, a couple of years ago. They're essentially four-inch pots that are just made out of pressed cow manure. If you use a peat pot here in our location or even a coir pot, it'll take several years for that to decompose, and so you usually end up cutting and disturbing the roots anyway. But the cow pots that I put into my garden decomposed that year, and I thought that that was great for me. Now, let me ask you a question about using something like that. I always thought that if you had something like cow manure too close to the seed, it would burn the seed or burn that's, the roots of the plant. That's if it's fresh. This, ah. is, this is composted. Yeah, so, so you don't want to put fresh manure of any kind really near a seed or near a plant. Too much nitrogen. You, yep, and you especially don't want to use that in the spring. You can put fresh manure down in the fall, but... 
I'd compost it for sure first to make sure you've got the weed seeds out of there, especially if it's horse. I think you just gave me a whole new business model to work with. <laughs> I mean, you know, why didn't I think of this growing up on the farm? I mean, that's that's just brilliant. Whoever thought of that, I'm sure that they are laughing all the way to the bank. But, well, I mean, yeah. that's brilliant. That that really is. I'm kind of annoyed at myself right now that I didn't think to do that because that's just, that is so incredibly smart. Because you uh-huh. think about, especially cow manure, horse manure, chicken manure, pig manure. I mean, all of it, it's, it's really potent. And... You know, now they're starting to get really strict with some of the farms as far as their ability to spread the the manure on the fields, Uh uh, which was always something that worked very well with us. And uh, aside from the smell, which is, you know, let's face it, if you're living on a farm or in farm country, it's not a Norman Rockwell painting. It's a farm. (laughs) Get used to it. And people that would go up there and say, oh, you know, the farm smells, well, what did you think it was, a rose well, garden? Yeah. You know, and the thing is, is that with with farming, I mean, th- the soil just loved it. I mean, you could tell by the plush green grass that we used to grow and just the quality of the vegetables. When I, when I get farm, when, when I get manure from the farm and I bring that down, um, downstate uh, and use it on my vegetable garden, it's a significant difference. It doesn't matter what they sell on the market. There's nothing like the fresh manure from the farm. And, and I'm not talking about stuff that's still liquid. I'm talking about stuff that has More uh, been sitting. Yeah, that's been sitting, that's um, you know completely dry. Uh, that I should really start my new business now, making these. <laughs> well, you know, you just can't. You can't beat organic matter. Adding organic matter of any kind to any kind of soil, whether it's sandy or clayey, it just—it's the best. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that that's uh, probably going to be uh, my new thing for this year, and I can't <laughs> wait to share that with everybody. But uh, let me ask you a question. So, when you start your seedlings. What types of materials do you work with? Do you do what my father taught me, which was the egg cartons, the uh, recycled yogurt container, contain, I can't even say containers, um, cups, anything that I could get my hands on, basically? I pretty much use anything. I'll take a, a, a tomato paste can and wrap uh, paper around it to make paper pots. Um, I have worked with soil blocks before, which is an Elliot Coleman trick. He has a special mix that you have to buy all of the good little ingredients for, and then you have a form, and they're blocks, and there's nothing surrounding them. But I typically will start with flats and then step up my plants a couple of times into something a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. And, in fact, I'm teaching a gardening class this Saturday, and I'm going to be showing them how to step plants up to bigger and bigger pots. So essentially, I use anything as long as it's clean. And that is something that's very important because a lot of people think that, oh, well, you know, I have these left left over from last year. Yeah, you might, but they've been sitting around and you don't know what type of bacteria may have found a home there. That's right. So it's right. very important to clean those pots. I remember learning that the hard way uh, one year I was I lost a lot of my seedlings and I remembered, you know, oh, by the way, you didn't wash these and... Sometimes it doesn't matter how good you are. Sometimes you just you get caught up with things and you forget. But uh, I won't forget anymore. Right. So it just takes that one time. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, what are your thoughts? Another trend is I see people taking newspaper and trying to make their own little pods out of the newspaper. They stuff a little soil in there, I guess, to to give it a little bit of, um, uh, I guess, a little soil, and then they wrap it in the newspaper, and they kind of make like a little um, little ball out of it, and then they they just place it in, um, you know, little plastic um like the 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 uh the cell the recycled cell pack containers to just hold it in place um i'm kind of weary about that only because i know that you can compost the newspaper but i just don't know about all the chemicals especially with the seed and i don't i haven't heard of that particular method um you know i know that you can like i said make your own pots by wrapping paper around a uh uh, tomato paste can and then making sure it's really tight but the I have not heard or seen uh, what you're describing I will have to get some pictures of it I know a few people that do it and um, I always I hadn't taken the time to do it myself only because I just I look at it this way what I do has been working my whole life so I well, don't exactly. invent the wheel exactly you know? Yep. And uh, even with some of these commercial things, I mean, sometimes I'll venture out and I'll try them, but what I found is is that uh, at the end of the day, if you're going to save your seeds, you're going to start your own, uh, you, you're going to grow your own seedlings, um, the idea is to try to save money and recycle. Yep. Um, and I found that when I try to do things where I'm introducing these newfangled methods, I spend so much money then uh, I would have had I just gone to a nursery and bought all organic seedlings. So, you know, that's something that I think people need to also think about before you start going crazy because it's very easy, especially if you're at a nursery or a garden center, to buy this, buy that, and then at the end of the day you see that, wow, I just dropped $500 without even blinking an eye, and it's like, why did I do this? Was this really a good use? Of, or, or a good way to spend my money. Well, that's exactly true. And I, I guess I have to say the only expense that I have when I do my seeds, um, I, I don't save all of my seeds from year to year, but I do save a good number of them. I do purchase a media uh, to plant into, but you can go out into your garden and get some of your garden soil and bake it for an hour at 180 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit, and that kills any of the soil-borne pathogens, and then you can use that, too. So you can bake the soil at a hundred, I've never heard of that, yep. 180 degrees, and does it, but doesn't that also kill the good bacteria? Um, it can kill the good, no, 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 wait, let me, let me back up. They are a they survive to higher temperatures. I've seen charts, and it's too complex for me to tell you about it here, but there are temperatures at which different organisms die. And all you're doing is holding that soil at this 200 degrees, 180 degree temperature, and so the good stuff sticks around. See. Now, the problem is that it stinks <laughs> when you do it. Really? Yep. Yeah, but doesn't it stink in a good way? Like, doesn't it have an earthy smell? Well, the earthy smell that you smell in earth are the good microorganisms. Ah, so the yeah. bad ones, they're letting you know, yeah, mm -hmm. we're not happy that you're baking us off. Right. Yeah. So is, is that how? let's just talk about this for a minute. I'm kind of fascinated. So 
what kind of baking pan do you use? Do you have any preference? Uh, and how thick should the layer be? I would just use a cookie sheet or a 9 by 13 um, uh, cake pan or something like that, and I would not uh, make it more than an inch or two deep, and I would make sure to put a temperature or a thermometer in the middle of that so that you know the center of it has reached that 180 degrees, and then you want to hold it at that temperature. And for how many minutes should you hold it at About an hour. Wow. How about that? And. Yep. Um, do you line do you line the sheet with anything parchment paper or anything like that, or it's just okay to uh, use anything that you would normally bake with? I I have some special pans that I just use. I have lots of special things that I use just for gardening, but I also have some things that I don't mind sharing with the earth, and that's fine with me. Well, you look at it this way: if you're roasting red peppers, uh, you know that you've harvested. Uh, I don't know. I, I agree. I, I don't see the big deal either. But Right. Well, it's kind of like spinach. You know you're going to get some grit with your spinach. Okay, so what? Yeah, well, that's why there's soap and water. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting. And then after that, so you let it cool off, obviously. And then uh, where do you store it? What kind of container do you recommend? Or do you just take a bucket and just... You know, then just, you just you let it cool off and then you use it. You put it into your containers however you're going to use it into your flats or into your pots or whatever. Excellent. And how long is that soil good for to use for seed starting? I haven't been asked that question. I don't know. I only just uh, bake it up and use it as I need it. Uh, Well, the reason that I ask is because I know sometimes I'll buy too much uh, organic seed starting the the, uh, soil and uh, what I typically do is I'll bring it out to my garden and I'll just dump it out there, but uh, there have been, uh, every every so often, uh, there will be a year where things are just uh, too hectic and it'll get shoved in a corner with some other stuff and then all of a sudden I'll notice it and I'll say, ah, look at this, and it's all you know dried out and everything. And what I usually do is just compost it. Ah, okay. So, so for purchased media, I usually will just use it till it's gone. I always smell it first, um, run my hands through it, fondle it a little bit, if you will, and uh, just see what kind of shape it's in. And if I think that it's worthy, then I may do a, a seed assay where I might put some seeds into it and see if they um, rot or something first before I... Uh, sacrifice a whole lot of seeds to it mm. and just test it that way. Same way that you might test uh, something that's from municipal compost to see if there's any herbicides in it. Yeah, that's a very, very big concern. And that's that's a smart idea. Thank you for sharing that. Now, um, in regards to just saving seeds in general, is it true that there are there are some folks that should just not even bother saving the seeds or should everybody save seeds? Well, gosh, I don't see why everybody shouldn't save seeds. Um, it's so easy to do. What's that? I agree with you. <laughs> it's it's very, very easy to do. Um, and uh, it's fun. It saves you money. And really, if you want to wax philosophical, you're actually kind of saving humanity by saving your seeds because everything is based on vegetation. And if you grow the plants from seeds that came from your garden, you are selecting seeds from plants that are successful in your location, and you're 
most likely to have um, good vegetables, uh, very adapted to your situation. I agree. And what's interesting is, is that if you don't use the seeds, I mean, you don't need to save them forever. You could give them to people. You could donate them to schools. You could donate them to you know, places of worship, whatever you want to do, or even uh, your local cooperative, uh, cooperative extension. And, um, you know, people are more than happy to take the seeds off your hands if, if you either have too much or you just, for whatever reason, decide that you don't want them. That's right, June, and one of the things that I have seen that's becoming uh, pretty popular are seed swaps. Uh, I went out to Bellingham, Washington to uh, uh, do a talk out there, and they were having a seed swap, and everybody brought all of their extra seeds and put them on a table, and you took what you wanted, and you left what you wanted, and everybody was happy, and uh, there was one here in my hometown last week, and so I would suggest that people just watch for those. They do that actually at the Rock Gardens. I'm a member of uh, a number of different societies, but at the Rock Garden Society that I'm a member of, uh, the president, uh, his name is Donald, he does that all the time. He has all these really cool seeds that, um, you know, everything's labeled according to the botanical name. And it's just kind of fascinating because, I mean, you look at the picture to see what you can expect, but I mean, they have a, a limited description on the packets, but I, I think it's just wonderful to be able to watch different types of plants that maybe you might not necessarily know about, and it's a great way to learn. But with uh, vegetable seeds especially, um, I know that there are certain vegetables that I'm definitely going to grow every year that I always encourage other people to grow. Um, and sometimes people just, for some reason, they just try to keep things very basic. I know somebody that just grows tomatoes, and then um, I gave them some uh, sugar snap peas, and they were thrilled. And they said, you know, I never thought to grow them before. And it, it's interesting how when people start venturing out of their comfort zone, they start incorporating more and more and more. Um, and I, I think that's really what it's all about just getting out there, seeing what works. I mean, you don't need to do the same thing, obviously, every single year, but it's just the point of getting out there is what really matters. Oh, absolutely. And every year I plant what I know that I will eat, and then I always plant an extra row to take to the extra to the food bank. But it's also fun to play with things that I know really shouldn't grow here, like okra, not in Montana, and uh, I tried to grow a green called Callaloo one year. My husband and I were in Jamaica, and we had that for breakfast every day. It's an amaranth, and it got to be about an eighth of an inch tall, and that's it. <laughs> it just wasn't wow. hot enough here. So it was just kind of fun to, to – it is kind of fun to break out of the comfort zone and see what will happen if you grow something fairly exotic. Now, let me ask you this. What plants um, – what plants are there that you just can't save the seeds from? Because uh, I know that you covered this in the book, and it's kind of interesting to watch people try to save seeds, and then it's like, by the way, you can't save seeds from these plants. Like, well, oh. the plant that comes to mind first is your all-male asparagus. Uh, of course, you're not going to be able to save seeds from the all-male types, and those are the ones that are very very vigorous uh they don't they don't make seeds because asparagus have 
male plants and female plants, and so that's completely out. Um, garlic, we usually don't save seeds from garlic. We usually do the cloves, especially the soft neck garlic. Um, cottonless cottonwood, horseradish makes seeds sometimes, but they're not viable. Um, Jerusalem artichoke, uh, sweet potatoes don't form seeds. And uh, one of the one of the big things that people think about when they think about mm, maybe we shouldn't save those seeds are hybrids. Hybrids are uh, genetic crosses of two hmm, inbred lines that uh, if you save the seeds from them, that genetic recombination occurs in the seed, and when you plant that seed the next year, no telling what kind of plant you're going to get because it usually reverts to one or the other of the parent, mm -hmm. but not the combination of the two. Sometimes that matters. Sometimes it doesn't. If you have a hybrid spinach, for instance, you're just eating the leaves, you're not eating the seeds, so there really isn't a problem there. You're going to have some very interesting, um, diverse plants in your garden, but for peas and beans and corn where you're actually eating the seeds, probably not a good idea to save hybrids. Thank you. My next question is, um, when you are harvesting seeds, how do you go about doing it? I mean, I've seen some people that will just, they'll make a salad and they'll take, uh, say, seeds from a pepper, just pull out the clump, put it on a paper towel, leave it aside until they're done doing what they have to do, and uh, then, you know, they go about their business uh, letting the seeds dry out. Uh, what do you recommend? Well, June, there are a number of different ways to save seeds, and it depends on the plant. And that's why people need to buy this book, so they can tell exactly how to save the kind of seeds that they've got. We've got uh, fruit that are wet, like tomatoes and uh, cucumbers, and we have fruit that has to dry on the plant, like peas and beans. And so it, there's very, very... Uh, the, it's varied, as a matter of fact. Um, you want to be sure that you let the uh, fruit stay on the plant as long as you can. Um, you also want to be sure that you save your seeds from enough different plants so that you have some genetic diversity in there and not just saving from one pepper or something, although that will certainly work. Another question that I have for you pertains to flowers. There are some flowers that, um, you know, it's a little tricky uh, trying to differentiate, okay, can I save seeds from these flowers or not? Is there any particular rule of thumb? Well, plant, plant flowers can be male or female or both. Plants can have just male flowers or just female flowers or both. So it's important you know what kind of flower your plant has. So for instance, we were just talking about asparagus. Asparagus plants are either male or female. But squash, on the other hand, have both male and female flowers on the same plant. And most vegetables have flowers that have both male and female parts. So it's really important to know what you're looking for when you look at the plant. Oftentimes, a flower will have, let's take a squash. 
you look at the base of the flower, and if it's swollen at the base on the stem, that's a female flower because that's where the seeds are going to be formed. If there's just a very slender stalk to the flower, that's going to be a male flower. So it's not really straightforward. You have to kind of know what you're looking for. Thank you. My next question is, when it comes to actually collecting the seeds uh, from different types of plants, uh, do you recommend a particular method, or is it just according to the plant, once again? Um, generally speaking, you want to leave the fruit on the plant as long as you can. And then it depends on the type of fruit structure, um, and then it depends on... Um, well, time of year is another big deal. If it's going to freeze, you want to get out there and harvest and then hang your mm -hmm. plants upside down in order to dry. Um, there's just a, a number of different ways for harvesting them. It's also really important to know which seed heads are going to shatter. And what I mean by that is the seed head of, let's say, a uh, carrot or a parsnip or dill uh, is called an umbel. And they ripen, the little flowers on there ripen at different times, and so you will get some of them that are ripe, and they'll start dropping off before the last flowers have turned into seeds. And so you can do something that's called bagging those, and you can take a piece of uh, pantyhose, if anybody remembers what those are, <laughs> and put, put that over the top and tie it at the top and the bottom, and that way uh, the flower will still be able to stay on the plant as long as it can, and if the seeds happen to shatter, they won't fall on the ground. They'll stay inside that stocking. Interesting. Just out of curiosity, do you have any recommendations for harvesting basil seeds? Um, let me look in my handy little book right here. Because <laughs> that's, that's always something that... Um, I have a problem with, uh, I grow basil every year, and of course, um, uh, I don't use it as much, I, I don't use as much as I grow, and then it starts to flower, and then it goes to seed, and sometimes I just wonder, okay, well, <clears throat> I never know if, um, I, I never know if there's a, a better method to doing things than what I do, which is usually after <laughs> after I've exhausted my uh, my um, other re op options, I guess. Uh, but with uh, basil, it it happens every year. I know that it's going to happen this year when I grow it, and I just want to prepare myself this way. When I see the plant getting to a certain point, I can say, "Oh, yeah, you know what? Cheryl said to do this." Well, I have to tell you something. Basil isn't in this book, so. <laughs> What happened plant. with <laughs> we we submitted so many plants that the publisher had to cut a lot of them out, and I'm actually quite surprised and a little embarrassed that basil isn't in here for crying out loud. That should be one that is in there for sure. Yeah, it's one that I <laughs> like go to see it all the time. Well, so exactly. What would you recommend that I do? I mean, the minute that I see it flowering, I mean, should I try the pantyhose method, or what should I do? Because those little black seeds are so tiny, I never know if I am going to capture them or not. And this year, actually, the last last year, my basil, I don't know how, but last year it um, 
it, it sewed itself, I, and I think it's because it was so warm. But also, I had um, I had a lot of uh, grass grass clippings that I that I threw on top of the garden, and I didn't necessarily break it down as best as I should have. But I had uh, grass clippings that really covered that whole spot, and uh, I was surprised to see that they, you know, they were self-selling. But um, I mean, it—I never know what I'm going to expect in my garden each, each year uh, when I start cleaning it up and preparing it for the new growing season. Uh, it's just amazing what I find out there. And right now, I have celery that I'm just kind of in awe. And um, I'm kind of thrilled that I, <laughs> that I have it this year too. But it's it's always interesting to see what's going to come back, um, just because the weather has been so crazy. The weather has been crazy, and you know I found uh, basil. I was looking under basil instead of oximum. Silly me, I should know that. Um, so the flowers are perfect. So that means that they are both male and female, and they're pollinated by insects. And they, you should harvest those flowers when they turn brown. When the bottom fruits are brown, take off the whole thing. So really? they're going to ripen from the bottom up to the top. So when the bottom flowers are brown, then you want to pick up, pick off the whole raceme and then let it dry on a screen. So with the with the flowers, with the basil, um, uh, I'm pretty sure they, they're, uh, I can't remember if they're white or purple. I just know that they're... Uh, they're light colored flower, so they're purple. Wait, yeah. Wait until they turn brown, and then just clip the top of the plant. When the bottom fruits turn brown, so the flowers are going to die, and then the the fruits are going to ripen, and that's when you want to clip it. Okay, interesting. Now, uh, since we're on herbs, oregano. Oregano grows. It, it grows like grass. In my yeah, garden. it's a weed. <laughs> it uh, well, it does, but the thing is, is that the flowers are just beautiful, and I'm just curious, could you harvest the seeds for oregano? Sure. Um, you want to, uh, again, these are perfect flowers, so they're both male and female, and then when those clusters of flowers have dried, you want to collect them at that point in time, spread them on a screen, and then thresh or rub them to remove the uh, nutlets from the rest of the material. Thank you. Now, after you're done harvesting your seeds, what do you do? Do you lay them on newspaper? Do you what? What do you what methods can you suggest to our audience so that they can utilize uh, and recycle some of the materials they may have already? Okay. Um, one of the really important things about taking care of your seeds after you've harvested them is to be sure that they're dry, and they. The literature says 6 to 10% moisture. Now, how you're going to figure that out, I don't know. But one method to be sure that they're dry enough is to put them on a cookie sheet and put them in the oven at 100 degrees Fahrenheit for 24 hours. And that's usually after they've sat on a screen. And I use an old broken-down uh, door and a window screen for that. So I do mean a screen out of the sunshine. Uh, so you want to, to uh, dry them for a couple of weeks, then stick them in the oven for 24 hours. And if you really, really want to do the best job of storing them, you're going to want to keep them in a dry place. <clears throat> excuse me, 
at 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 45 degrees relative humidity. And that means you're going to have to buy a thermometer and something that's called a hygrometer. They're very inexpensive. Uh, you can get them at the local uh, hardware store, and that will tell you what the relative humidity is. Now, that's perfect conditions. You can store them. I have a cupboard <clears throat> underneath my steps down to the basement, which is unheated and cement floor, and I keep my seeds in there, and it's about 50 degrees and quite dry, and they're just fine. What do you store your seeds in? Do you put them in Ziploc bags? Do you put them, um, I've seen people take wax paper and make uh, fold them so that they create their own little bags. Um, I've seen all sorts of things from uh, one year, I think we took envelopes from junk mail. And we took the envelopes and we basically, you know, just used a pen to label the envelope and stored the seeds in there and then put them in an old uh, coffee can. Yes. Um, we have to remember that seeds are alive, and because of that, they are respiring, so you have to be sure that you don't put them in a completely airtight situation. Uh, what, what we recommend is a cool, dark place in a paper container, and a folded-up uh, piece of wax paper works really well for especially small seeds. And um, if you happen to have any old coin envelopes around. Those work really well for small seeds because the corners are folded up. Otherwise, you might lose uh, the tiny, tiny little seeds out of the corner of your envelopes. And I like your idea of the junk mail return envelopes. The only thing that, that I could think of to do with the junk mail, because I remember one year just going through uh, all the business junk mail that I had, I had so many envelopes. And I mean, I've heard all sorts of things that people have done where they've taken the envelopes and then mailed them back to the same companies yep. that have issued the junk mail. But the thing is, is that, A, it's a waste of yep. resources, and the companies don't care. No, they but don't. But you're better off just utilizing the envelopes and putting them to some type of use. So I just thought that, that would be a smart idea. But I think it is. But it's interesting what, you're, what you said about how the, the seeds are still living. Because I remember I ordered Edelweiss seeds over the Internet, and they came in one of those little teeny tiny plastic Ziploc bags, and they didn't germinate, they didn't anything. And now mm. I know why. Mm. Well, usually, I, you know, and I don't know, they could have been exposed to some really warm temperatures or something, but for short periods of time, that's usually okay, but I certainly wouldn't keep them for very long in a, in a Ziploc, especially not a little tiny one like that. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, the plastic is the the, the airtight uh, environment is basically what uh, did yep. it. But um, I appreciate knowing that. Yeah, that that's um, that's a big problem. I didn't know that, and I, I I'm grateful for the knowledge. Uh, you know, once again, folks, uh, you can learn something new every day. So let's see. Just to recap, I learned about the cow pods. And the plastic bags, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. And, and um, in regards to labeling the seeds, I've seen all sorts of fancy things. Do you, do you go crazy labeling them according to the common name and the botanical name, or what do you do? Because I'm labeling them for me, I have my own shorthand. If I'm giving them to a friend, I'll be a little bit more specific. But what I always do is I put the collected date, and I always put the uh, botanical name, and I always, if, if 
there's a um, a name for that particular species, like black sea man tomato. I will put that on there, mm-hmm. and um, uh, make sure that all of that information is on there, especially the collected date. How long can your seeds last, especially if you stumble upon some seeds that you saved, say, from five years ago? Are they still good? Okay, that depends on the conditions in which they were stored. And um, ideally, most seeds last and stay viable for three to ten years. And um, that's what you should be thinking about. If you have any question about your seeds, if they are going to germinate or not, you can roll some up in a wet paper towel, put them in a Ziploc bag on your kitchen counter, leave them for about 10 days and see how many germinate, and that way you can tell how, um, how closely you need to sow them. Thank you. Now, what are some of the common mistakes that you found that people will make when it comes to saving their seeds? Uh, when it comes to saving the seeds would be to remove from, from the fruit before the fruit is completely ripe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to depend on the different fruits. Um, cucumbers, when they're completely ripe, are yellow and yucky looking. Um, eggplants actually drop off of the vine. Um, and tomatoes are quite soft, so you have to be sure that the fruit is as ripe as it could possibly be before you remove the seeds. And also storing them um, in areas that are too warm, too cold, or too moist. Can you freeze seeds? You can freeze seeds. However, if you defrost them in the um, container that you froze them in, you have the possibility of um, moisture condensing on the sides of the jar or the Mm. um, envelope, and then you could possibly have some um, damage to your seeds. Now, warm season crops, I would not freeze them, such as corn, beans, tomatoes, and so on. Thank you. My next question is, in regards to um, when when you're uh, just reviewing all the different mm-hmm. seeds that you have, um, some sometimes I found that uh, some of the seeds after they're dried, uh, they may be chipped or cracked, uh, or just uh, you know they they just didn't they didn't dry well. Right. So what should I do with those seeds? Should I compost them? Should I even bother trying to see if they'll they'll grow, or what should I do? If the seed coats are damaged, they usually will not germinate. They may imbibe, which means they'll take up water if you soak them, but they usually won't put out that radical, that that brand-new little root that needs to come out, uh, particularly with beans, and I would compost them. Thank you. In regards to germination, do you have any methods that you'd like to share with the audience, especially uh, rapid germination? I've seen some people that will take seeds, especially uh, string beans, for example, put them in a warm cloth overnight to try to expedite the germination process. Yeah, some people like to do that with um, sweet pea seeds, for instance, and peas and beans. And and uh, all that's doing is keeping them nice and moist and getting that germination process going. And uh, that would be something that would certainly be appropriate. I don't do it. I just put my seeds in the ground and water them. Thank you. 
so uh, let me ask you um, another question. In regards to this book, are you going to put out um, another book that kind of continues the knowledge? Um, at this point in time, I really don't know. Unfortunately, my uh, co-author, my husband, passed away last September right after this book was published, and so I'm still kind of regrouping my world right now, but there's certainly more information that was left out of this particular edition that could be included in another edition. Well, I'm sure Robert must be extremely proud looking down, watching over you. Oh, he's uh, right here with me. <laughs> This is such a beautiful book, folks. Uh, the The title of the book, once again, is called The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, 322 Vegetables, Herbs, Flowers, Fruits, Trees, and Shrubs. And uh, this is definitely one that belongs in every garden center and every learning center uh, for horticulture. And even in a classroom environment, this is such a great book, especially for kids. Uh, and kids, they really absorb knowledge so incredibly quickly um, or so incredibly fast. And the the stuff that you have in here, I mean, you have tips for overwintering. Um, can we just briefly talk about overwintering for a moment? Uh, if you're talking about biennials, overwintering biennials, because they need to have a chilling period. Uh, here in Montana, we probably have to dig them up and bring them inside and, and keep them cool in some moist sand and then replant them in the spring so that they will flower and make fruit. But in some parts of the country, they can stay right in the ground and um, make their flowers and fruit right there without being disturbed. It's it's amazing. You know, you you learn so much from people such as yourself that um, have so much knowledge to share and the amount of information that is in this beautiful book and especially the images, um, the images are just really, really gorgeous. And uh, once again, folks, the information that is in here, there's so much information for the novice gardener to a master gardener um, and can't tell you <laughs> enough. Pick up a copy of the Complete Guide to Seed Saving. Um, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you share with our audience your website? Okay, June. Um, I am in the process of building a Facebook page, and it's not quite ready. But if anybody had any questions for me, they can get a hold of me at Cheryl, that's C-H-E-R-Y-L, at zone4magazine.com. And four is the numeral four. Thank you, Cheryl. Everyone, we are out of time, but thank you so much for tuning in. And if you've missed the show, you can always subscribe to The Organic View on iTunes or visit our podcast archives at www.theorganicview.com. Have a great day, everyone.